White Sox, White Sox, go, 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 go. Call your sons, call your daughters. Holy cow, Carl Pittman has put the White Sox ahead. There goes number 400 for Big Fred On Sox, Sox. The dynamic duo of Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. Those two are like a tag team, you know? Come with me to Southside of Chicago. Hi, this is Jim Tomey, and the best White Sox talk is on Locked On Sox Podcast with Tanny and Herb. Hello, and welcome back to Locked On Sox. This is Herb Lawrence alongside Chris Tannehill. We're back in the great basement of Chris Tannehill's Sock Shrine here for episode number 42, Tanny. Today's episode of Locked on White Sox is brought to you by our friends at rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Summer's here, and if you're like us, you're planning on jumping in your car and hitting the open road. I'm going up to Michigan myself in a couple weeks. It's one of my favorite things to do is get a little dashboard time, but before you put your key in that ignition, you're going to want to make sure everything in your car is running tip-top. And if not, and you need to find a replacement part fast, you need to head over to rockauto.com. There's so many different makes and models of automobiles these days. Finding the right parts for your car can be overwhelming at times, but not at rockauto.com. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of of manufacturers it's you know it's so important to stay on top of your car's maintenance so that way things don't you know break down on you when you're out there on the open road so make sure you got everything you need at rockauto.com they've got everything from engine control modules and brake pads to tail lamps motor oil and now even carpet the rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands specifications and prices you prefer best of all prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. That's right, 42. What better way to start? What better player to start? Number 42 is synonymous, obviously, with Scott Ruffcorn. We're going to talk about Scott Ruffcorn this entire episode. No, uh, in all seriousness, Ron Kittle, love you. And quick story about Ron Kittle. Uh, I remember thinking that I made it in the industry because I, I was with my dad one day at Rick Benny's and uh, Ron Kittle was there. This was after SoxFest one day and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go show my dad what a big shot I am. I'm going to go up to Ron Kittle and say what's up because we had had him on the station a bunch of times. And uh-huh. I'd met him a few times previously. So I go up to Ron Kittle and, uh, you know, my natural, my icebreaker is to, you know, start ripping on Ronji. And he was more than happy to oblige ripping on Chris Ronji. So, you know, Ron Kittle going back and forth a little bit. I don't know if my dad was impressed or not, you know. Did but. he share the Barry Bonds story? <laughs> no, no, not that day, even though, uh, like, that's like a standard issue fair uh, when you're talking to Ron Kittle, uh, the Barry Bonds story. Perhaps uh, another time we'll get to that one. So apologies to Rough Corn, Rod Bolden, Paul Ossenmacher, Dale Swaim. Les, Les used to call him Paul Assenholer. <laughs> 
I think it was less. Sure. <laughs> Paul Osenbacher was great as a White Sox and a Cub. Really yeah, great. but probably not a great guy, though. Probably. If I remember that correctly. But so who are we going to name this number 42 episode after t- Chris Tannehill? Well, naturally, the number 42 retired by every team in Major League Baseball, of course, belonging to none other than the great Jackie Robinson. And we figured this would be a good time to kind of talk about not only Jackie Robinson, but the Negro Leagues and the impact that they've had on baseball, our game as we have it today. And yesterday, well, actually this past Monday, if you're listening to this on Friday, on Monday, there was a campaign going around. Uh, You may have seen it on my social media profile at Chris Tannehill on Twitter. Uh, The tipping your cap sort of hashtag was, was going around. You had former presidents like Barack Obama, George Bush, uh, I believe Jimmy Carter was in there as well. I didn't see and the video. Bill, and Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, Bill Clinton was there, and they're they're tipping your their caps to the Negro Leagues in honor of the 100th anniversary of the conception of the Negro Leagues, which was not uh, the date was not yesterday, as I incorrectly said on my Twitter account, but it was in celebration of the year. Uh, 1920 was the first year that the Negro Leagues formed. And, of course, Jackie Robinson, before he was a Los Angeles or Brooklyn Dodger, he was a Kansas City Monarch. And the tipping your cap gesture, this is from tipyourcap.com. It's such a simple gesture, a tip of the cap. Nobody knows for sure, but it seems to have evolved from the ancient custom of a soldier taking off his helmet when coming upon a friend in the battlefield. The gesture was meant as a sign of respect. A man takes off his hat to show... He dares stand unarmed in your presence. Over the years, tipping of the cap has been a sign of respect for openness and vulnerability, a demonstration of high regard and gratitude. There are numerous ways to tip your cap. You can respectfully touch the bill of the hat, or you can barely tilt it forward, or you can go for the full doffing of the cap, which I chose to do yesterday on my social media, where you take it high off your head. Tipping your cap to the Negro Leagues is a simple two-step process, and they go on to say how you can do it on social media or send your video to the Negro League Baseball Museum, which we visited back in 2013, and we'll get to that later on in the episode. But we figure talking about Jackie Robinson and the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues is, is a good place to start in this episode of Locked on White Sox, especially considering Chicago's rich history with the Negro Leagues. As I mentioned, Jackie Robinson played for the Kansas City Monarchs. He was a part of of the Negro League All-Star Game, the East-West Game, which, of course, was played at Comiskey Park, the original Comiskey Park, back in 1945. And if you don't know, the Negro Leagues were the Negro National League, which I'll get to in a second, the Eastern Colored League, and the Negro American League. And I've got a name for you today in this episode of Locked on White Sox. I'm going to talk about a man who I think deserves some more respect, or at least some some modern-day acknowledgement. And we learned about this man a lot when visiting the museum, and a man by the name of Andrew Foster. He was born in Calvert, Texas, a small town, the population of about 1,100 today. He's a son of a reverend. He stood six foot four inches tall. Uh, he was a pitcher in the dead ball era of the early 1900s, and I can't even think of, of a, of a modern-day comp to think of what it would be like facing off against a guy like this in the batter's box. Bobby Jenks was the first one that came to mind, even though, you know, in terms of stature, same height, yeah. Weight was I couldn't find a weight on uh, on Andrew Foster, and we're just thinking about like a hundred years ago where people were much smaller, yes, much shorter. So this guy was he would be a giant now. Back then, he was larger than life. Legend has it that John McGraw, the uh, New York Giants manager, 
and noted racist who supposedly kept a rope from a lynching in his pocket for, quote, good luck. That's what they said on Ken Burns Baseball. Mm-hmm. He, he was a noted racist, but he thought so highly of Foster that he hired him to teach the great Christy Mathewson his fadeaway pitch or the screwball. You may know him as Rube Foster. The legend has it he earned his nickname by outdueling the great Rube Waddell, he, of course, of Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics back in the day. And Rube Foster is known commonly as the father of black baseball. Uh, it was his dream you know, to have uh, a league equal to the major leagues it, it with, you know, filled with black talent, something that people could pay to come and watch. Teams would tour across the country, and basically they wanted to have the black counterpart to major league baseball at the time. And Foster, he, he was a big man in stature, but also he was someone that wouldn't back down to, to anyone. He feared no one, you know, in terms of anyone in, in the white world. You know, he, he was a successful businessman, obviously, you know, he, professional athlete in the early 1900s. So he endured his shares of trials and tribulations on his way to success. So he wanted to have a league that was an equal counterpart to Major League Baseball, and in 1911, he teamed up with a man named John Shorling, who was actually the son-in-law of Charles Comiskey, and he was a bar owner, and he teamed up with Foster, and what they did was they decided that they were going to start their own league, and he was going to lease the grounds of Southside Park to Rube Foster. John Shorling owned the Southside grounds which my great-great-uncle Lee played before Comiskey Park. That's what they called it back then, the Southside Grounds, Southside Park. And Foster decided that he was going to go in and, and go in on a team, lease the ballpark from Shoreling, and they would form the Chicago American Giants, and they would become the premier team of the National Negro League. And you remember the quote, Herb, I know – it's all over the Negro League Baseball Museum merchandise. It's all over the building when you go there. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. And the, the quote is, we are the ship, all else the sea. That was Rube Foster who came up with that quote. So that's sort of their mantra, we are the ship. It's sort of you know unifying rallying cry even to this day for supporters of the Negro League Baseball Museum and the Negro Leagues as a whole. And after his playing days, you know, he would become the owner slash manager of the uh, Chicago American Giants, Rube Foster did. And he was a real hard ass, they said, as a manager. Um, I, I imagine all people back then were sort of hard asses, oh, but, yeah. but especially in baseball. But to be considered a hard ass, even by those standards from in the early 1900s and 1920s, he had to have been uh, a quite, quite a guy. But I mean, I can only imagine the segregation he felt, the... Uh, pressure he felt and then it's also like the 20s i mean it's the roaring 20s and yes. then it's the great depression so you right. had to be a little harder a little rough around the exterior to be a businessman like he was and then also a gruff manager and a big part of the uh, negro leagues too was you mentioned the great depression sort of as a lot of the country was out of work baseball suffered but black baseball thrived in a lot of these cities where black folks were, you know, coming from the South and starting to build their own lives and, and build up their own businesses and families and, and sort of set up shop. And the Negro Leagues were sort of the epicenter of those communities. And we'll get to that more later on. But it was said, this is from The Undefeated, who, by the way, has a great piece on Rube Foster that they have published this week where you can read more in depth about the man. But Quote, as a player manager of the Leland Giants, which was the team before they became the American Giants, 
Foster famously invented strategies to thwart opposing teams. According to other historians at the time, Rube Foster popularized the hit and run, the drag bunt, the double steal, the suicide squeeze, and what he would call the button run. And that was uh, advancing a runner from first to third on a surprise bunt. Uh, would you would you have liked Rube Foster's style of play? No, I I'm, I'm gonna it. I'm gonna ask you again after after this part. I mean, here. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to bunt to get that hit, yeah. But if he's just trying to advance a runner to third, I mean, it's it's a little different. But also, it's not just the sacrificing yourself to get to second or whatever. Right. But yeah, I get it. If you're if you're lukewarm on it now, wait till you hear this. In Ugh. one game, the story goes with his Giants down eighteen to nothing to the to the Indianapolis ABCs in the eighth inning. Foster signaled for eleven consecutive bunts. Opposing fielders were so flummoxed they couldn't get anyone out. The Giants went on to hit two grand slams and to tie the score before the game was eventually called on account of darkness. Darkness? I mean... (laughs) Darkness was all around the field, friends. I don't know why they couldn't call it earlier. You said not me. Yes. Um, But yeah, I'll be furious. It worked out. If they're butting for hits, I'm in for it. But if they're just butting just to move over guys over, and if I mean, I get his strategy. These other guys are not fielding our bunts, so let's continue to do it until they show us they can. So that strategy worked out. They hit two grand slams. That was more of the thing that happened or helped them out than the, what, 11 consecutive bunts? Yeah, so what So what the managerial, managerial prowess of Rube Foster was basically going for was a bloop, a bloop, a bloop, a blast, a bloop, a bloop, a bloop, a blast, and so on <laughs> until the game ended on a kind of darkness. So in 1920, Foster sets the wheels in motion to create the Negro National League in association with black teams modeled after Major League Baseball. He was named president and treasurer of the Negro National League Matter of fact, he was the it was the first successful league for African American players, the NNL, and it flourished throughout the decade of the twenties. Player salaries rose to an unprecedented level. Teams traveled on Pullman coaches, and players received regular bonuses. Like back then, traveling on a, on a Pullman coach was pretty much the it was the highest class that you could get, really. You know, in terms of you know riding around and, and going from city to city. Talk about like it's like a, you know having a five star restaurant on a train car. And, and, you know, luxury bedding and things like that. So this was as good as it gets for anyone at the time. And for, you know, a, a, a black man in that time period, like it's certainly quite a sight, you know what I mean? And it's, it's really impressive when you think about it. So Foster, now one of the proprietors of one of the most successful black businesses in the entire world. And sadly, unfortunately, they said eventually because of the pressure of uh, the travel, because back then the travel was a lot more grueling and they had to work extra hard you know, to, to keep, you know, income coming in, going from city to city across the country. They had to work extra hard. I can imagine what a lot of those nights were like. Um, because of the pressure, the travel, and other factors, it eventually sort of drove Rube Foster mad. And, you know, the Giants, like I said, they were one of the premier teams of the Negro Leagues at that time. They had league titles in 1920, 1921, 1922, 1926, 1937, 1933, and they won Negro World Series titles in 1926 and 1927. So, you know, you don't hear a lot about the Chicago American Giants every once in a while, every five years or so. Buck O'Neill and getting back to, to Jackie Robinson, who played for them. But getting back to Rube Foster, you know, what happened to him later in his life, he was in an Indianapolis hotel 
and there was a gas leak in the hotel that nearly killed him, nearly asphyxiated him. So that began to have its sort of mental effects lingering uh, well after that. And then combine that with the nervous breakdown, he was admitted to a mental hospital in Kankakee, Illinois, and it was said that he would have these hallucinations about getting phone calls to, to pitch in the White Man's World Series. Really heartbreaking stuff, but this man gave his life to baseball mm-hmm. and to the Negro Leagues, and the Chicago American Giants were basically a Negro League institution. And you could imagine, like, in the 1920s in Chicago, this is right on the heels of the Black Sox scandal. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, you know, baseball sort of started to fall out of favor with, with a lot of the fans back then. That's why the prominence of, of Babe Ruth was such a big thing, because he sort of, like, pulled baseball up by, the, by its bootstraps and got the fans back into baseball and sort of even helping guide fans through the Depression, too. You know, I sort of, like, you know, Babe Ruth was a big part of that, but a lot of it was because of the Black Sox scandal. So you can imagine being a baseball fan in Chicago, and all of a sudden, you're you're down on baseball maybe a little bit and you're a little bit more open-minded than most and all of a sudden here you go the Chicago American Giants playing just down the street from the White Sox and they are just dominating Negro League play I, I just I wish I had a time machine sometimes you can go back and to see what a lot of those east-west games were like when mm-hmm. you talk about having Jackie Robinson Satchel Paige Josh Gibson playing in those games you know and you talk about like a, an epicenter of, of black culture at the time you know Comiskey Park was was right there at the heart of it and here's from Ken Burns Baseball sort of breaking down what the essence of the Negro Leagues was at the time and, and what it meant to the community at the time. Black players had been shut out of the major league since the 1880s. But for half a century, they had struggled to build leagues of their own. Now, while most of organized white baseball faltered in the midst of the Depression, black baseball flourished as never before. Teams were points of pride in black communities all over the country, boosting local economies, making life a little easier in southern towns and in northern ghettos, stitching black America together. In the 1930s, Rube Foster's old dream of a separate but athletically equal league finally came true. The opening ceremonies consisted of a parade of automobiles, some 300 in number, led by a squad of motorcycle police and a truck filled with tutors of jazz hounds. It was a great day for the opening, warm weather and the folks coming out like a lot of bees hidden away all winter and getting active when the sun shines. Chicago Defender. It was the era of dress up. It was that era. See, the men have on ties, hats, the ladies had on their fine dresses. In our baseball, a Sunday baseball, in our faith, you know, Methodist, Baptist, or whatnot, 11 o'clock service on Sunday. But when the Monarchs in town or when the East-West game was on, they started church at 10 o'clock so they could get out an hour earlier so they could come to the ball game. So they got on their finery coming from church. They came straight to the ball game, looking pretty. Yes, we loved it. The great Buck O'Neill, who passed away, I think in 2006, who's a great ambassador for the New York League Baseball Hall of Fame, and just baseball in general. You see mm-hmm. him on a lot of documentaries and things like that. So there's, there's the Negro Leagues at their height, and it's said that when Rube Foster passed away, Black baseball died with him. And it's something I've been thinking about, 
yesterday going through everyone tipping the cap and certainly reflecting on our experiences when we went to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. It's really a, a unique experience. And if you ever get the chance to go to Kansas City, when things open back up again, maybe you're making a White Sox road trip like we did. It's me, you, Brendan McCaffrey went there just nonstop, just eating barbecue and enjoying baseball. And we made time to go to the Negro League Baseball Museum, which is right down the street from Arthur Bryant's world famous barbecue. But I remember going there and I wish I would have taken more photos. I tried to live in the in the present then, you mm-hmm. know, but going back now, it's I wish I would have taken more because I, I felt like if I took more photos, I would wouldn't enjoy it as much as I could have otherwise. Um, and you don't, you don't really live, live in the present and you kind of just, you know, speed through it. And I feel like we did that. At least I did that when we went to the baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown, where I took a lot of pictures because mm-hmm. it was crowded with people. They were swarmed with people and you felt kind of, you know, you were ushered in like cattle <laughs> in and out and, you know, because there were so many people there. So that's why I would recommend going back uh, a second time. And I would love to get back to the Negro league baseball museum because it's something that relies heavily on public funding. I don't know how much Major League Baseball gives them, if anything. I think they should. Mm-hmm. I think it should be a partner with the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown because you can't tell baseball story without telling the Negro League story. And I wish I would have taken more photos so I could remember a lot of the things. But one thing I do remember vividly about the baseball, the Negro League Baseball Hall of Fame was, you know, they remember the, they had that little bleacher area where they had a lot of the photos and sort of bios yeah. Of, of a lot of the greats that made the league possible. And I remember sitting there and looking at that photo of Rube Foster and thinking of all the, the shit that he probably went through uh, trying to, to trying to make himself what he eventually made himself into and then reading the part about him having a nervous breakdown because of it all. Just, you know, just it's crazy to even think about, but here he is. He, he built the Chicago American Giants. And after hearing all that, if you had never heard of Rube Foster before, he was inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1981 by the Veterans Committee. But I think at the at the very minimum, I don't know if the White Sox had plans at all to do the throwback jerseys again this year in honor of the 100th anniversary. I think they did, but it's always only one time. Typically throughout a season, they'll, they'll wear them maybe twice. Turn back the clock type of thing. Yeah. Um, I realize it would be a little hollow if they did it this year. I, I think at, at a minimum, they should rock those every Sunday. Have have those be the Sunday alternates, I think. I'm in. I, I always love Sunday alternates to I'm begin not, with. Not a fan of 83s, but whatever. <laughs> Careful. Watch yourself there, buddy. They're not that great. <laughs> um, but I think at, at, a, at a minimum, start this year, and I think next year, they should do it the entire season at the bare minimum. Just you know, make people more aware of the Chicago American Giants played just down the road from Comiskey Park and their impact on baseball at the time and the legacy that Rube Foster left behind. And in addition to that, I think the White Sox should honor Rube Foster. I think they should build a statue and honor the man. The original Southside Park was located at 38th and Princeton. So I was thinking have the Rube Foster statue close to there or right there on 37th Street, right when you're where you're pulling off and you're going to the to the parking lots when you're going to a game, having his statue sort of be the first thing that greets you upon your arrival at the ballpark. Put it there or even put it by gate two. That's where the patio is. A lot of people congregate in that area. There's nothing there currently. I think it, the White Sox would would be well advised to to have a statue to commemorate Rube Foster and keep the knowledge going and growing about what guys like him, you know, contributed to our what we call our game. <laughs> you know, we, we say it jokingly sometimes, but, 
you know, that that's how the game gets passed on. History, tradition. I, I think it's a no-brainer that they, they, they should honor the man. I didn't obviously know anyone who knew the man, but mm-hmm. I just, just reading about him, especially lately, I just think it, it's something that the White Sox should do. And I think it would be a good thing to sort of raise awareness and, and to bring it back full circle, sort of point people back towards the Negro League Baseball Museum because they do rely heavily on public funding. And if you have the means, visit them. And Or if you don't have any plans to be down in Kansas City, donate to them. There's, there's plenty of opportunities to do so. Mm-hmm. One thing that struck me when we were there is, you know, it seemed like a place that, that could use the funding. Like it seemed like it had, it was already great, yeah. but, it, but it had the potential to be something even bigger and better. So, you know, public funding is such a huge part of that. So if you have the means Take a trip or at the very least donate to the Negro League Baseball Museum. What, what do you remember about that trip in 2013? And what do you think about the White Sox erecting a statue in Rube Foster's honor? I'm all in favor of that because he is Chicago baseball history. And since there is no um, you know, museum here for him to get honored, he should be honored by the team closest represented by him. So he was friends with uh, Charles Comiskey's son-in-law. He made Chicago baseball exciting, and that's what I've learned since being there and going to the museum itself. People liked Negro League baseball. The brand of baseball was more exciting. It was more what baseball is now, where it's becoming, where it's more um, entertaining. Guys are doing things that are uh, celebratory, happy. Uh, the games, like you said, the bunting from uh, the guy from first and goes all the way to third, that type of quick uh, reaction and athleticism was going on back in the day. I just couldn't imagine being a person that was doing all the right things and the promises of America. And you won't be able to, you see people that you are better than playing in the sport and the league that you cannot play in. And I just couldn't imagine. Hell yeah, I would go crazy. I would have a mental breakdown if I was Rube Foster or all the rest of these players like Oscar Charleston, um, not having the opportunity when you know, not think, you know you're better than the player that you see on your or listen on the radio at the time or uh, later on maybe saw on TV. And you're just, while having a great time in the Negro Leagues, you want to play with the best versus the best, whatever the league is known as the best you want to play versus them and show them hey this is a game that we you know we're playing because we love it and here's my talents I can offer something to you so I I feel sorry and I understand I mean understand I empathize where Root Foster had a mental breakdown because no matter what he did wasn't good enough for the white man back in the day and that is just a very sad thing and the one thing they could give back to him is an honoring, an honoring of his legacy, an honoring of his time. And he's not here, and some probably his family members, uh, children and such, probably not alive anymore. But it would be good for the White Sox to honor him and his legacy, what he's brought to Chicago baseball, and what he did for the Negro Leagues, the National Negro Leagues. And I... Um, very sad listening to that story. It's it's very heartening to as a black man to know that people back in the day, while they're being oppressed, are still striving for greatness and trying to break through to be the next player, to be the guy. And Rube Foster, a successful businessman, yeah. trying to do well and 
like you said, that's the funny people, thing. People would go more. The attendance for the All Star Game for the National Negro Leagues was bigger than the All Star Game for the mayor, for the um, MLB. That's why these guys kind of were pissed that they saw it. These white there was only there wasn't just only black players in the or black uh, fans in the stands. There were white people in the stands seeing this action. Like. These guys are great. That's what I meant about the time. Is you imagine if you were a big White Sox fan and maybe you were a little disenfranchised? I think if some like it parallel to the to the player strike, if there was a comparable league with equal talent that was playing at a high level, like how would you not you know want want to take part of that? And you know you hear a lot about Jackie Robinson in the history books, and rightfully so if you're if you're lucky enough to learn about him in school, like 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 I was, you know. But you think about someone like Rube Foster, who you never hear about. And here he is, you know, a successful black businessman, you know, before the 1920s even occur, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it would it would be great if, you know, just kids got a chance to hear more about that stuff. And it, it is really unfortunate that they were still locked out of pro baseball. But, you know, they were still happy uh, to, to take uh to take money from black and brown people you know what i mean like mm-hmm. you know we'll do business with you and your money's still green but we're gonna lock you out otherwise like you know it's just it's, it's frustrating but, but like you said there, there are some some good things to, to take out of that tale but back to josh gibson who you know supposedly hit in, anywhere between 800 and a thousand professional home runs you know they they call him the, the the true home run king and they said that when jackie robinson got the call to to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers and he was the first one to break the color barrier and make it to the big leagues they said Josh Gibson eventually passed away from a broken heart because he just could not deal with it and I don't know the decisions you know that in of the time that went into Jackie Robinson you hear a lot about they needed someone who could sort of take the abuse and you know we were just talking about this a few minutes ago like I you know I wonder how many of them could also have taken the abuse and and been passive and sort of just ate it, for, you know, and, and you know, for entire career. Uh, maybe it was partly due to age. Jackie Robinson was younger than a lot of his Negro League counterparts. But um, it was said of Jackie Robinson, of course, he, he was famous for he was a multi-sport athlete at UCLA. But they said that he actually didn't like his time in the Negro Leagues that much because uh, of a lot of the the gambling and and partying that you know he was a straight laced like you know you know UCLA is not you know Ivy League but it's like an upper tier upper crust American university yeah. and and he was used to being a, a, an athlete uh, at, at the highest level for them so he goes to the to the Negro leagues where you know they're they're partying gambling it sounds like a great time actually I would have loved the Negro leagues if I was a fan back then I think it's excellent <laughs> enjoyable times like. I'm. I just always see, yeah, and the Josh Gibson story is very sad. He did die in 1947 at the age of, I think, 35. So yeah, he was kind of upset that he was almost like hitting 500 and hitting bombs every year. 1933. I'm looking it up right now. He hit 467 with 55 home runs <laughs> and 137 games at all levels of competition. The guy was a champion, and yeah, him and Satchel Paige and other guys were known to be better actual players than Jackie Robinson. And the story goes that Jackie, like Chris said, was chosen because of his demeanor, his more buttoned down. He could still be successful as a player, but take the abuse that he would have to come with. And maybe Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and others would have, you know, um, you know, bristled a little bit. I think, um, not to demean Jackie or anything, I think any of these players, if they were given a proper shot, 
would have did everything they could to stay in the major leagues as long as they could and to show out and show that they're the best players available. Imagine if that, I just said, just imagine if you're the best at anything, that anything you do at your job right now, you're the best. And they're not letting you go because of the color of your skin or just some arbitrary reason that you have no control over. Yeah, he died from a broken heart because his dream was shattered. He's the best. And like, hey, uh, you're too dark for this game. And I mean, I, I just think about that. This happened within your grandparents' life for, mo- for more, most likely all of us out here. My, mm-hmm. gran- my grandmother was alive in 1947 when he died. That's not that long of a go. So this is a, a sad tale about America that really, for the most part, you know, we can play baseball now. We can be in major leagues. But has the attitudes changed? Are we seen as other? I just want to, you know, have a chance for these back baseball players now to be not seen as other, just to be seen as, man, he's a good baseball player. And if we can get to that point, I think that, Everybody will be more it will be better for everybody overall if we're all just seen as individuals and not as a monolith of all those black players over there. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned it a few seconds ago. I, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way whatsoever. This is not like a criticism of Jackie Robinson or you know, we're we're not you know, coming at it with an angle of, you know, trying to, you know, dissect this well after the fact saying that they made the wrong decision because obviously Jackie Robinson was a great player, World Series champion, uh, changed the way people viewed uh, black people at the time. You know, imagine those people he, he won over, you know what I mean? Like at the time who thought maybe that they were inferior, they didn't belong playing with white players. But here's Jackie Robinson taking baseball by storm, not saying anything about Jackie, you know, in a negative fashion because our lives are all permanently changed because of him. And we're naming the episode or titling the 42 because of him. And we aren't baseball fans today, likely with without him breaking the color barrier. Go and, ahead. And I think that while we're talking about Josh Gibson dying of a broken heart, Jackie Robinson, I think, also died early in his life. He did. Because of all the torture, all the racism, all the oppression that he had to face in his life. Um, brought about uh, diabetes, brought about a heart attack and a stroke. Yeah, not so. just the oppression, but like, but internalizing everything and and, yeah. and and having to eat it. You know, it definitely it cost him, you know, his life or at least years from his life, having to have the approach that he had. So mm-hmm. he definitely paid for it. Um, one of the guys that I enjoyed learning about at the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City and through Ken Burns Baseball and watching interviews, there was an interview from the Dick Cavett show that I saw yesterday on Twitter. Satchel Page talking about driving from Pittsburgh uh, to you know to Chicago, You're throwing a shutout in Pittsburgh, driving to Chicago, throwing another shutout like on back to back days. Like these guys busted their ass and they traveled you know twenty four seven. And you know you hear Josh Gibson eight hundred plus home runs. You know they're so prolific. And you know I don't know how reliable a lot of these stats are back in the day and how much of it is folklore, but. Uh, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, who the Double Duty Classic, which is is held today by the White Sox, he was a uh, player for the Chicago American Giants and a contemporary of Satchel Paige, and and I enjoyed learning about Satchel and sort of like he had this penchant for for gambling and you know certainly loved ladies and, and driving fast cars. Like this is my kind of dude right here. So here's Ted Double Duty Radcliffe talking about Satchel Paige. Satchel, so if you want to live a long time, don't fool with nothing old but money. 
Nothing big but a bankroll, nothing black but a Cadillac. <laughs> nothing over 22 years, nothing that weighs over 130. If you do, you're in trouble. Cause when you're getting old, your cells are getting low and you need a Delco battery to boost you. How that sound? Yeah, how great is that? What do you remember about the Negro League Museum? I just remember that it was just like storied. It was just, uh, it's on 18th and Vine in Kansas City, right down the street, as Chris said, from Arthur Bryant's. We went to the Negro League Museum before we went to get some grub, but it was just all the things that you didn't know. Like you, like everybody knows about Jackie Robinson and to some extent, a little bit about Larry Doby. But you get introduced to the names that we talked about earlier. Cool Papa Bell, Oscar Charleston, um, Rube Foster. These guys are uh, history. They're American history. They 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 loved, and uh, we spoke uh, earlier in the week with Lawrence Holmes, spoke with the president of the Negro League uh, Museum, Bob Kendrick, about how they're so intertwined with jazz like jet like it's right next door in the same building with the american jazz museum so the jazz musicians that wanted to play baseball would watch the games in the morning and then the baseball players who wanted to be jazz musicians would go to the jazz clubs especially in kansas city that's a good melting of of uh, talent there so you had the baseball players like Ernie Banks was a Kansas City monarch. Of course, Jackie Robinson was. Uh, Buck O'Neill for a time was. And so they're all together chilling out. And he told a story about them going to a club and some 17-year-old kid coming in and playing. And they're like, who's this kid? And it turns out to be Charlie Parker. So it's Incredible. It's, it's stoked in history and just great stories. If you ever get a chance, if you're in Kansas City, if you're in the Missouri, in the state of Missouri, or close in Kansas, make sure you go to the Negro League Museum. You'll have a great time. It's relatively inexpensive. I think it was like ten dollars to get in back in the day. I don't know what it was uh, now. I think I went back with uh, my girlfriend at the time a couple years later to just uh, buy, purchase a hat. Uh, purchase a shirt. I bought a Chicago American Giants shirt. They've got some great 100 year anniversary gear up there now. Like the the gear has gotten better since we've been there. Oh yeah. And I'm thinking about reinvesting in, in some of that stuff. Like you know me, I always got to have like give me a pint glass, give me a shot glass, give me a cap. You know, and they have like this dope ass leather like varsity jacket like commemorating. And it's got I think it's got the uh, the the we are the ship slogan on there, you know, so it's pretty cool stuff. And I do remember the baseball field, the mock. Uh, That's what I was going to get to. Yeah, baseball field they have with the players there, and they got plaques behind them explaining what these guy, who these guys are, and what they did in the Negro Leagues. It's just a, uh, a fun time. There is like any museum, there is a film that gives you a brief synopsis of where and how and when the Negro Leagues was. So you get a lot of history, and for a relatively inexpensive price, you get a great afternoon if you're out there at the Negro Leagues Museum. Yeah, standing there amongst those statues of some of the all-time greats in baseball history, you know, standing there on a field next to them, it's truly a unique experience that you've got to you know live for yourself and, and experience for yourself so that's all i've got white Sox, if you're listening 
honor the man. You know, the contributions are, are, are pretty much unparalleled. And, you know, it's, it's South Side history. It's Chicago history. It's baseball history. You know, they should, they should do right by the man. And not saying they're doing wrong by him now, but I think it would be an amazing gesture. And baseball, the, the one thing that, 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 that bonds us all together throughout the years is, is that tradition, is you can compare people from, from the past to today and, and accomplishments. So I think it would, be, it would be a great thing. It would, it would be a beautiful thing to see. So that's all I've got for this episode, episode 42, honoring Jackie Robinson. Uh, in the next episode coming up, we're going to talk about some more expanded baseball rules for the 60-game season. We'll get into the White Sox full well, full-ish roster uh, to start the season, and we'll talk about some of the Zips projections. I keep teasing that. We'll, we will get to them eventually, but there's a lot of good stuff here we'll get to. So that's all I've got today, Herbie. All right, Chris Tannehill. Uh, for Chris Tannehill, I am Herb Lawrence. To follow us, it is at LockedOnSox on Instagram and on Twitter. I am at EctorWall23. It says Lawrence spelled backwards with 2-3, which is Robin Ventura's number. Chris Tannehill is at Chris Tannehill on Twitter and on Instagram. And don't forget to tell your smart speaker to play Locked On MLB. That's right. Locked On Podcast Network has a great MLB show where they're breaking down everything. There's a lot of news going on in baseball. A lot of players dropping out, rightfully so. You know, There's a lot of moving parts here going on every day, so you're going to want to make sure you're tuned in to Locked On MLB. So tell your smart speaker to play Locked On MLB. And that will do it for episode number 42, the great late, great Jackie Robinson. We appreciate his contribution to Major League Baseball and thank him and all the Negro League players that came before us and sacrificed and didn't get the opportunity to play in the Major Leagues like our guy Rube Foster and also Josh Gibson. So for Chris Tannehill, I'm Herb Lawrence. You've been listening to Locked on Socks. A part of Satchel that no one ever hears about is this part of Satchel. We in Atlanta. We're playing in Atlanta. The next night we're going to play in Charleston, South Carolina. So we left that night from Atlanta going to Charleston. And when we get to Charleston that morning, the rooms weren't ready. So he said, Nancy, come go with me. We ride in automobiles. I said, okay. I had an idea where he was going. We went over to Drum Island. Drum Island is where they auctioned off the slaves during that period. And so he said, come go with me. And so we went to Drum Island. And they had a, a plaque there, you know, saying what had happened there. And we stood there, he and I, maybe 10 minutes not saying a word, just thinking. And uh, after about 10 minutes, he said, you know what, Nancy? I said, what's that, you He said, seems like I've been here before. I said, me too. Because, you know, I know my great-grandfather could have been there. See, my great-grandmother could have been there, auctioned off on that block. This was Satchel. This was Satchel. It was a little deeper than a lot of people thought.